This is Dan Gore. Welcome to the Icons Podcast. For more than 30 years, I've been involved in the art of female impersonations and celebrity impersonations. I've worked with some of the most amazing performers in our history. I've traveled around the world, producing and directing shows for corporate events, casting for TV and movies. But most impressive of all is getting to know some of the most amazing people ever to grace our industry. Best known to many as the art of drag. I've worked with and become friends with some of history's finest that have paved the way for many of today's current and upcoming performers. This is our chance to learn more about our drag history. This is Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Dan Gore with Icons podcast. I'm so happy to welcome a legend when it comes to female impersonators and especially as an actor. And he is very well known throughout the world, playwright and a screenwriter and actor as well. So please welcome my guest this week, Charles Bush. Mr. Bush, how are you? Hi, wonderful to hear and see you. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been doing these podcasts about people that have made a career in doing female impersonations. And uh, you're a name that's always been thrown about and a very accomplished uh, performer and actor. And I just want to talk about your upbringing and how that all came about. So you were born in New York from what my research I've done. Yes. Yeah, I'm about as New Yorker as you, you can get, really. Uh, and <laughs> And, and basically, I've lived here all my life, except for the, the few years that I went to uh, school in the Midwest. But yeah, can't get out. Growing up, did you have this aspirations to be an entertainer or an actor? Or how did that come about? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Or when you grow up, what do you think you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. No, I was just stage struck from earliest memory. And um, I guess, the yeah, the idea was you know, that somehow I just wanted to be on the stage. And I'd, I'd always been writing. I, I don't really quite understand the whole thing myself because I was, you know, turning out full-length plays when I was 12 years old. And and, and yet the um, my teachers didn't think I was anything, you know, special. I, mean, I just wanted, to, I never didn't really think of being a writer. I just wanted to be an, an actor and, and writing was just, you know, something I enjoyed doing. And the creative writing, did you have this vivid imagination? Like, or did you, something inspire you to like, I want to write something? Like, how did that inspiration come about? Is it just internal that you just started writing? Or did something yeah, kind of I, light your flame there? Well, you know, I loved um, old movies, you know, and so I, you know, I really grew up watching old movies on television. So my first plays when I was a kid really were kind of mashups of old movies I'd, I'd plots that I'd seen before and I guess I'm still doing that in a way but yeah no I it my early stuff that I wrote as a kid was, was somewhat fantasies of you know parts that I might want to play or something but but, it, but really then when I went to um to college I was a theater major at, at Northwestern University and I just saw that um you know that I was really never cast I was just too too gay and too androgynous and I know, I know it's very uh, disturbing to me because that's all I wanted to do. You had auditioned for like plays like in high school theater or community theater. Like, did you get a bug that early that you were auditioning or no? Well, you know, growing up in New York City, it's it's a little different. You know, there's it, um, I, I went to the I, I also draw. I have another talent I, I draw. So, so I went to the special high school called the High School of Music and Art, which was a, um, a, a public school, but for gifted kids in either music or, or art. And, and so I was an art major. And, and so they didn't have any kind of theater program. I, however, I was raised by my aunt and um, she uh, sent me to acting classes on Saturdays and she would send me to summer camps that catered to the, uh, you know, uh, gate. So 
artistic young male child, you know, <laughs> with recherche tastes. And so, yeah, so I was always sort of doing theater on the side with, you know, at my acting classes and in the summer. Do you recall the first audition that you did? Well, you know, in, in college, you know, I would audition for things. I can't really remember things specific, except that what was interesting and a bit of a turning point, I believe, is that um, there was a play, a 19th century comedy called The Magistrate, and, and there was the, the leading role was supposed to be this young man who's like 19 whose mother is a famous beauty and so she doesn't want people to think that she's getting older so she makes her 20 year old son pretend that he's 12 and it was an old time farce and I thought oh that'd be a good part for me but I didn't get it and some very you know butch uh, young kid got it but I'm, I'm really have a very I'm not a fantasy queen I'm, I've always been very pragmatic and, and, and kind of tough and honest with myself so I was raised that way and I saw that I thought Hmm. Now, in a way, I guess I would cast that guy too. That role kind of needed to be that way. And the qualities that I would bring wouldn't really be telling the right story. So that that was interesting to me. But then fortunately, came home. I would come home on vacations to New York City, and I was exposed to the work of this remarkable and very influential playwright, actor, director named Charles Ludlam, who had his own theater company, The Ridiculous Theatrical Company. And I was just bowled over when I went to see him because I had assumed, you know, growing up in New York and only being exposed to the, you know, Broadway musicals and plays commercially done, that that was it. And so when I saw Ludlam and that he created his own theatrical world, you know, um, off, off Broadway with, um, you know, writing plays and starring them and had his own company. And there were, you know, guys, sometimes he played a, a female character and sometimes he didn't. And, and that was all just so revelatory to me. And, and it made me think that, okay, you know, there is another world and, and maybe I am a writer. Maybe I am a writer and I can write roles for myself. That was the big turning point and an audition that I could create it myself. Correct. Making it happen for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, was Ludlam the first actor that you'd seen play a female role? Or did you see anything on television or in bars where men dressed up like women in a role of some sort, if, if not just a drag queen? Well, first of all, I was very young, you know, I mean, I was mm -hmm. 17 years old when I saw Charles Ludlam, so I wasn't going to bars, you know. Uh, but uh, no, I, I guess I had never, you know, maybe, you know, on TV or something, you see some slasher drag queen or something you know but, but Lud uh, Ludlam was the one that really yeah, kind of yeah, laid a absolutely, absolutely laid a mark within you to yeah. to know that you could do yeah. it yourself and because I, I wasn't you know interested in in you know it was all about the theater you know and playing a, and acting roles in in a play mm -hmm. I, I had never had any desire to, to be um, a club performer or, or mm -hmm. anything like that it didn't even occur to me I, I didn't even know about it it was just it was all about writing play and playing a, a, a great female character and you know and i i just um i i was always just very comfortable without ever even expressing it with with my you know sort of androgynous nature i i think i was raised in a, in a interesting way by my aunt without her actually saying anything i didn't really care i mean you know it might have just been me i i somehow didn't really care what people thought or um was afraid of i think i thought i was kind of fabulous to be quite honest with you <laughs> i don't know and i shouldn't have because you know i um before i moved in with my aunt at 14 when i was first living in a suburb you know um and uh and my, my i should say that my mother died when i was seven and my father remarried and you know so i i didn't really have actual nuclear family so you know so, uh, but but anyway in my early years you know i certainly had my share of, of being bullied and 
and um, uh, just whatever the you know the gay kid experiences and being a you know kind of somewhat queeny kid. But um, but I. I so strangely, though, alone in my bedroom, I, I thought I was kind of fabulous. I really did, and I and I thought, okay, this is a, I've got a big secret that I'm really kind of fabulous, and I'm just going to hold on to that secret until I'm good and ready to to reveal it. And when I do, watch out. And that and that, <laughs> that really was you know in. I don't know why, how I got, I think that's kind of fabulous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But because uh, I, I wasn't so concerned about what the world thought or that, you know, yeah. You had your own inner timeline where it was going to flourish at one time. So I consider it a strength. So you have this inner, inner strength, this confidence that you knew at your time, something was going to happen. It might be now, not now, but it's eventually going to happen. So was it a surprise to you within, like when you saw Ludlum that, you instantly could see yourself playing a character as a you know woman character or was that a something that eas- that you thought of easily or was it a hard something hard to swallow um well my sister and i were always doing impersonations where she could do a perfect james cagney i could do a perfect betty davis <laughs> so so i always had these kind of characters in me and improvise sort of old movie type dialogue and and my roommate at, at Northwestern you know I was always entertained it was also a young gay kid and and uh, I would he was just my great audience and he he actually said to me when when I would do the the seven ages of Betty Davis alone for him in, in my in the dorm room that he said this is what you should be doing but I thought how do I you know how is that going to really be an asset in a, a professional theater career so then when I saw Ludlam I thought yeah you know maybe it, it is yeah uh, and then you know we started you know I oh Ed and I uh Ed, when we were at Northwestern we would go to this fabulous drag club called uh, the Baton Lounge where they had a wonderful show brilliant lip-syncing uh drag queens it's and it's still there it's yeah. just... one of the oldest establishments running those types of shows in the, in the country i mean for not being a gay bar it's you know it's not billed primarily as a gay bar so it's it's one of the only establishment the longest running establishments still mm-hmm. around yeah and there's a, a one particular performer who i think is still there chili pepper yeah she is she chili pepper is still there yeah. <laughs> style such and authority and oh just brilliant and and so that certainly seeing chili pepper didn't didn't inspire me to want to be um uh lip-syncing um uh club performer but i re- could certainly appreciate the uh her strength and and charisma and, and so you know and, and glamour sure. and, and, and you know really when you're young everything inspires you in in some way i i think a lot of drag performers find their style according to also what their physical attributes are you know and and i was um small boned and you know i I looked very somewhat realistic in drag you know as a and and i think that kind of informed my style and and then also i probably even more more than that just my my love for both for old movies and the great actresses of the you know golden age but then also i i was fascinated by by theater history and i and as much as I as I was 
intrigued by Betty Davis and Norma Shearer in the movies. I also was very interested in actresses who did not make movies in the 30s and 40s. Um, Catherine Cornell and um, Lynn Fontaine, people whose names you know don't mean anything today, but were great theatrical stars who really chose not to make movies. And I was fascinated by all of that. And so that informed my style, which in a certain sense was always somewhat naturalistic, you know, and, and uh, pathos was as important to me as getting a laugh and, and having kind of a, a realistic look, female look, because I was writing plays. It was always in the context of a play. And I, I never, I didn't really have a drag persona. You know, I, I played a different character. That's my career has been playing a different character in every play. It's sometimes they overlap a bit because, you know, I'm often a certain kind of you know, elegant lady, but, but, but even they're not really, I've played, I've played my sheriff of you know, kind of, of horse, but yeah, but it's always a different character. It's always Charles Bush playing, you know, Madeline Astarte or Chicklet or, or Kurtrude Garnet or Mary Dale. Or, and that's what interested me, not not being one person. So creatively speaking, after you saw Ludlam, can you recall what you started working on at that time? I mean, you're going to school at the time still. So creatively speaking, do you recall what that what seeing him inspired in you at that time? creatively? Yes, it made me take my writing seriously, which I'd always done. And the problem at Northwestern then, it's different evidently now, but uh, when I was there in, in the uh, early 70s, they had no playwriting program and they had no, and they had nothing, no system in place to to produce an original play. Now, now it's very different, but at the time there wasn't. So I, I was really on my own and I wrote a senior year, I wrote a one-act play about a, a traveling freak show and I wrote the, you know, and it was somewhat in the Ludlam vein and I, I wrote the two leading roles, a pair of Siam, conjoined Siamese twins, Sister, sisters who are, have an act, uh, um, Hester and Esther. I wrote those parts for my roommate Ed and I, and we were going to just do it in the lounge in the dorm, you know, for on a Sunday afternoon. But I had I had a friend who uh, was a bit o- older, and he ran a series of uh, old of cult movies in the big student union auditorium on Fridays, Friday and Saturday nights called Midnight Madness. And they'd show John Waters movies and Warhol films. And they lost the rights to their mo- one of their movies. And my friend said, well, we'll just give you the rental fee and you could put your play on in the in the big auditorium. And I could, you know, we'll give you the $200 rental fee and you can get to have costumes and things. <laughs> so, so we did. And that was the first time that I wrote and directed and produced and, and played a part in, in, in drag. And it was just revelatory for me. I, I I instantly knew that um, this is who I am. This is what I must do, and really give up any notion of thinking there might be a career in other people's plays, a, a traditional career. On that first debut with the si- sisters, did you uh, did any family members come? No, too far and, away from New York. It, yeah, and it, what is interesting though, it's funny when you, you know I think of myself back then as this very vulnerable person, and and. And yet, when I talk about it, I I think, boy, that's some you know gutsy kid, you know. Um, but I didn't. It did not occur to me. It just simply did not occur to me that being in drag was risky or brave or or defiant. You know, there was not, nothing of that. It just was. I just want, you know, I think it's a marvelous part, and this is what I'm going to be good at, and it's going to be fun. It's be fun to do. You know, and, yeah. And I was I was a little concerned that the day of the show, I had done my very first interview with the campus newspaper. And and it, I, whatever I said, I don't know, but they, on the front page of the headline was Degeneracy Reigns at Midnight Madness <laughs> and big picture of Ed and I in drag. And, and oh, and it's all said, I, 
it sounds so lurid. And I was afraid that um, all these you know, jocks would come and jeer or, or whatever, but we sold out and the audience, and you, know, you can say, you know, you can sense uh, sensitivity. You can sense an audience, what an audience is responding to. And as soon as the curtain came up and there were, was Ed and I in drag tied, strapped into this Siamese twin costume and there was such a huge roar. And immediately I, I thought, oh, this, they're not ridiculing me. They're thrilled at my you know, audacity or whatever. The story that you wrote, was that just at one time or was it ever, did you ever do it again yeah. or just in college? We did two nights there and then when, then when we graduated and I decided I just wasn't ready to come back to New York. It's it's an w- w- odd thing, you know, when you're an actor, you know, at a certain point, you know, when do I hit New York? And it's a little easier in some ways when you're not from New York, living there, it's like, when am I ready <laughs> to be here? And I wasn't ready. I was just trying to figure it out, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I went right back to Chicago and, and stayed there for two more years and, and started, we did Sister Act for two nights at a, actually at a, at a puppet theater, which was a little <laughs> difficult since we were full length. I just was trying to find any place to do this. Oh, there was a very hip uh, new wave club in Chicago uh, called La Mer Vipère. It was very hot. And somehow I asked them if I could put on a play at, you know, early in the evening before it really started, you know, people really came in and they said, okay, you know, cause otherwise we've just been, you know, empty. And I wrote it another little, short little piece for Ed and I, there was a, an old movie spoof uh, called old koozies. And uh, it was based on a Betty Davis movie called old acquaintance. So we, so we did that and that, that, that was two nights and that was very encouraging. And I, I just started, you know, doing plays and, and putting them on in Chicago, just all over the place. For a while, there was a couple weekends that I got this movie theater to let us put on the play in front of the movie screen uh, after the last show. I was just very, you know, trying to think out of the box. Since there's no internet back then, do you just flyering uh, coffee houses or restaurants, schools? I mean, how are you getting your audience to promote yeah. back then? Sometimes we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do it when I people talk about now about the pandemic. Well, maybe, you know, we'll, we could do it, put on a show with everybody seated six feet apart. You know, I, I said, I've done it. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> That's it's funny. Get a laugh when they're six feet apart. But yeah, no, I, it, it was hard, you know, um, but it was, it was fascinating for me to, in, the, in that through this embryonic me to play in front of these different audiences because sometimes you know i'd book this 45 minute play at a straight kind of you know saloon place and, and then but then or or in a gay disco or just i convinced the owner to give me the off time that nobody would be there so they would say okay you know better than nothing you know, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it's just there's a reason why nobody's there at seven o'clock so yeah um and i guess it was just i don't know how i had Flyers, I guess. So after, after, after the two years, you know, if that two years in Chicago, after you, assuming you graduate, when did you finally make it to back to New York? What, did, was there any moment or situation that said, I got to go back to New York? Yes. Well, yeah. Um, so it actually, you know, I was kind of telescoping everything. So when I was in Chicago, after I graduated, I hooked up with a, a bunch of young people who uh, I, I was in a, I, I was in a play and I, I was telling the cast that, you know, that I had this fantasy of having my own theater company where I would write camp uh, movie parody plays and, and uh, be the female leading late. And they all kind of hooked on. This is great. So we started this little theater company in Chicago. And, and I wrote this play for us called Myrtle, Myrtle Pope. 
the story of a woman possessed. And I played Myrtle Pope and we started, and now that, that was the play that I was doing at all these strange places. And I, I had, was having a wonderful time. And I thought everybody was, I loved everybody in the group. Uh, one afternoon, they every, they decided that we should have a kind of an encounter group thing where, where we all sat around a circle and told each other exactly how, what we thought of each other and the direction we were going in. I thought, oh, this is marvelous. I love them all. I'm having so much fun. You know, I like them all. I can't wait. And <laughs> they went around the circle and any person was like, like, like you know, oh, you know, Maggie, I love you. You know, Christine, oh, I just, you give me, you make me a better person. Charles, I just don't understand you at all. It seems like it's all about you. And, and it went, and oh, it's just horrifying, horrifying. I had no idea that there were, it was a hotbed of resentment and, and jealousy and, and bitterness. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I it was totally blindsided. And so it turned out that they thought I was ruining their lives. Creatively speaking, I mean, the most, I mean, this is just me thinking, it's like, you know, creatively, creative projects, it's a big puzzle, you know? So you can't have, you know, the whole production staff of divas, if you will, or actors, you know, because you got to have someone that doesn't want, you want the people that have a desire not to be seen and that have a desire to do this behind the scenes, you know? It seems like with some of the productions, there's these, just a perfect puzzle that comes together where, and I think that's why I think some really succeed because you have the right people on stage and you have the best people backstage and the costumers and everything. You can't have a diva being a costumer because then there's oh. competition. And when, <laughs> yes, and when you're very young and, and trying something new, I think the group, the chemistry of the group has to be such that, that you really are all sharing the same common dream. And that evidently was not true. <laughs> <laughs> this nest of vipers. <laughs> I think some of us I should get over it I should get over it Dan I I was so blindsided and I was mad at myself for for being so obtuse and not you know not not realizing that 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 I was living a fool's paradise no but but I should thank them all because that I did get very Scarlett O'Hara and and think you know as God is my witness as God is my witness I will go to New York and I will never (laughs) never allow a non-union actress to make me feel guilty for taking the final bow. <laughs> I, I think I've had some of those situations before, but I just kept going forward, you know, and, and uh, so, yeah. And I know we, with your story, it just gets better. So, I mean, so that, so, the, so that's, that lights you, that lights, you know, lights you up to move to New York. And when you get to New York, are you starting to, I mean, I think you're no more really auditioning. You're just creatively writing and just make, produ- producing your own stuff, right? Producing yeah, all your right. own I might have gone to an audition or two just because I'm in New York or something, but I knew that wasn't for me and, and I would never be cast. It didn't interest me anyway. I, I was into this thing now. I thought uh, creating roles. And the, the thing was, when I got to New York, uh, in know, knowing no one, having no connections to anything. And, um, and is I, your I thought, aunt, your aunt still there? Yeah, or she moved? Okay. Yeah, no, I, you know, I had no money. I, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll live with my aunt, you know, for, oh, maybe three weeks, by which time I found some marvelous, you know, charming um, apartment for little rent, you know, down in the village and, and some sort of little part-time work tied me over. Well, you know, two years or so later, I'm still, you know, living at home. Was she still supportive or at that point after you've graduated, moved back, she was like, okay, time to get with the program or was she still supporting the, your creative genius? Ultimately, yes. She, I think she felt uh, occasionally it was just somehow the right, the proper role to voice some sort of concern of like, well, I, you know, I can't keep um, bailing you out or whatever. Um, 
But had I ever actually said to her, oh, I'm just going to give up and try again to be a casting director or something, she, she would have said, no, no, don't, don't do that. But, but it never got to that, that point. It never occurred to me that it was, you know, that I'd fail. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I'm just, I'm obnoxious. I'm just obnoxious. No, I, it's, it's peculiar. I, I just, I don't know. I just, it's so funny, you know, one with the way you think of yourself and then, and then the facts speak, speak differently, you know, I, um, but yeah, no, I just uh, thought I had something to offer and it was going to work out if I just kept at it. Um, oh, so, so anyway, this, the big thing was that I had been working in Chicago. I, the next play that I was going to write for this group of ingrates uh, it was uh, a piece called Hollywood Confidential, which was a spoof of, not really a spoof, let's say, just it's kind of a mashup of movies about movies like Sunset Boulevard and The Bad and the Beautiful, et cetera. And anyway, I thought, well, maybe I'll just turn it into a solo show, one-man show, and I'll play all the characters, male and female. That way I want to deal with, with you know, <laughs> who are so bitter. You know? So, uh, yeah, so I, I did that, and I came up with this piece, solo show, that where, um, you know, I was just, you know, at that, in those days, it was kind of thing where you know I kept switching characters to tell the story, and I'd put on a fedora to be the you know reporter, and then a feather boa to be the actress, and big hat to be the gossip columnist. I wouldn't had no idea how to try to get it produced, but I I knew that maybe I could perform it in a cabaret room where they just would book you. And there were a number of small... About what year is this that this is coming the, to? Um, 78. Yeah. So I started performing, even though the piece really wasn't suitable for cabaret because there was no music. It was all just dialogue. But, you know, I convinced these people to let me do it in their... Cabaret. I mean, you had a sense of confidence in the story, in the tell the story you're telling me that you can... you very convincing. So obviously you have some confidence when you go to solicit your, your talents to these places. Yeah, I, so, that, so that's admiring. <laughs> <laughs> well, even when I'm incompetent, I, I, I'm a good salesman. Yeah, so, you know, so I started doing it. So I really, I was a solo performer for the next eight years. And, and, and then I um, lucked out that I met, I was, at, I, I was at a party and performed a 10 minute piece at this party. And, and this guy came up to me and said that he was the artistic director of a small nonprofit theater in Washington, D.C. called the Source Theater. And he said, why don't I'd like you to be part of our season and come to D.C. and, and do your show for, you know, a five week run in a, a theater. And so this, is like, the Ho this is the Hollywood Confidential piece no, or? Uh, no, that was another piece later. I'd, okay. I'd done several pieces and kept learning. And, okay. and then I figured out that I didn't need any of the props and that it was actually what I was, the magic of what I was attempting to, to do was to give the impression of a full cast of characters playing, but using nothing except mm. my physicality. So there were no hats and boas and it was just me switching focus to be different characters. Which, which is definitely, I mean, I'm not an actor uh, per se. So obviously that has to be the most difficult part. You don't have any props. So everything is really coming internal. I mean, it's more, the, the weight is more internal than it is uh, yeah. external. A real education in many ways as a writer, it was, it was um, interesting because I, I it had always be clear every second you can't have even one moment that the audience is confused at you know uh who's speaking or where you are and i had to it was a great exercise in learning exposition that within literally 10 seconds yeah you had the audience had to be clear the location who's talking and what the situation was and not do it in a real hokey kind of way that that was interesting and, and gradually you know I, I did it for eight years all these different pieces I would do and I kept learning and I would have different directors 
work with me and I would learn from them. And, and I, I started learning that, that even playing multiple roles, that you didn't have to do it really hammy or broad, that you could be subtle, clear, but subtle in differentiating between characters. I'm assuming you went to DC to that theater. Did you do several creative parts or just one uh, one play there? Well, that was the first time that I could do a full evening because I wasn't in a cabaret where you just do a you know an hour set. So I, I did two act uh, rep- repertoire. And I think the, uh, I believe that there were three short pieces in the first half. And then second half was one 45 minutes pieces, quite ambitious. That was the first time that I really was in a, in a real theater and doing a full evening. And I got these rave reviews because I'd hardly ever been reviewed at all before. And when I did, you know, it wasn't, usually wasn't very good, but uh, suddenly in DC, I got, oh, raves and everything from the supermarket weeklies to the gay bar rags to the Washington Post. And I was a big, you know, theater only sat 20, but you know, I sold out uh, you know, six shows a week and, and it was extended and extended. And, you know, it was my first feeling that, that okay, I'm, I'm not deranged. Yeah, yeah, you're doing something right. Absolutely, absolutely. I am, I am right. And that's, that's the thing yeah. young performers all need is that validation, certainly mm-hmm. that you're not deranged. You're right, you're right. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, very moving to have that validation. And as an actor, when you play these these female roles is there one is there a particular actress or actor that inspired you like that you have respect for talent wise on stage anyone i wasn't really you know they they really were such original characters i was doing that i can't say that i was particularly evoking anyone what was or acting style i prize my question i I guess they were also also different you know i did one one piece i did was about a it was called a theatrical party and i was very influenced by recordings of a f- famous woman monologuist named Ruth Draper, who was uh, had a long career from oh, the teens to the 50s. And she, at the end of her life, she, in the, in the 50s, she recorded records of her solo pieces. And uh, Lily Tomlin was very influenced by her. And that's how I, you know, you, you know, you discover people through other people. And sure, yeah. I remember re- reading an interview with Lily Tomlin, and she said that she was, as a solo performer doing characters, so influenced by Ruth Draper. So I go to the library and I get out the recordings of Ruth Draper, and then I learn. Yeah, so I would do a piece where I played all the, it was almost like Downton Abbey and, you know, playing all the characters. But, but my, my kind of dark secret was that I didn't really like playing the male characters. I didn't think, I, and they weren't that good. But I, I somehow, I don't know. I, fe- I felt just without expressing it that to tell my narrative, I needed the male characters to tell the full story. But of course, in a way that that means nothing because you know, a creative project is however you dream it. There are no rules. But I, I at that young age, I thought I, I needed that. Um, and yet, it was really, I think quite obvious that the female character is the you know the enigmatic countess who lives on the hill was i was better playing her than i was the old irish fisherman i i had read that you a, a quote where you said like uh i'm paraphrasing like playing the women woman roles there's like there's no lid it's just like kind of wide open the role there's no it's not not ending like when the men roles a little held back with the with you're playing a woman you can be alive or a large more of a more emotional range yes uh, also just it was in me it's just i was so i've always been so in touch and in most in the most intrinsic organic way with the feminine within me is so you know it's not it was just so effortless it's just this part part of me it was more tell you it was 
it was it was more difficult for me to play the the young sailor who comes you know to the village or you know the straight parts of that mm -hmm. that was kind of hard for me and and I, you know I, it was okay you know I, I got by and and surprised and it's surprising how few people ever commented on it. Charles Ludlum, in fact, actually came to see me and, and, and at one point said, why don't you just play the female characters? And I, was, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> That, that, that was so what so what was that like when did, did that take place before dc when ludlum come came to see your work or did it come after i think maybe the year before yeah maybe okay so, so i mean were you surprised that he was seeing you at your work or did you not know he was there or i, I stalked him okay <laughs> I, I met him briefly in chicago he had um he came his troop came to to um Chicago to perform at the University of Chicago and my friend Ed and I you know went each night to see them do their shows and you know and met them oh you know and I was just very stage struck and so you know I'd, I'd met them and uh and then when I got back to New York in 78 you know I just stalked him and I and I didn't I really didn't know what I I wanted nothing from him really I I did not want to work with him I didn't I I didn't even want to be friends with him I I think I you know it's so hard I I I think maybe it just it was as, as simple as just wanting him to wanting wanting his approval wanting him to think I was talented wanting him to be proud that I was sort of in his line you know something like like that I I had no desire to be a part of his company I that was not any dream of mine. But I know I, pers I pursued him and, and um, he came to see me um, at this little club. And, and then he um, said, you know, what are you up to next? And, and I um, said, nothing. And, and he uh, he's had his own theater at this point uh, in the village where he was in permanent repertory with this company. And he said, oh, you should do, you know, Hollywood Confidential at my theater as late shows. And so I did that for a couple of weekends and with no audience, nobody came, nobody knew who I was, but, but, you know, yeah, you know, he was, he was mercurial and uh, complex, but, 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 you know, ultimately he was, he was helpful to me. DC is a big hit. You come back to New York after the DC, DC run, and then you start creating, you're always creating. So what's the next masterpiece that becomes uh, alive for you <laughs> on, on stage? Well, I just kept, I, I was encouraged with this you know, um, thing in DC to think, Oh, maybe because for, for one thing, when, I was performing, you know, these complicated pieces in cabarets, you know, I was totally unknown in New York. And so, um, you know, how many times can you get your friends to pay the, you know, $6 cover charge? Uh, and I thought, well, may maybe the, the way to go is to try to book myself at other nonprofit theaters around the country who would actually produce the show and pay me a salary. And I had no management at all, you no know, agent or anything. So I, I really, I was something, I have to say. I, I, I wish I had a little more of that gumption today. Yeah, no, so I, I, I would sort of do my research and find out, you know, in different cities, what were the small nonprofit theaters. I knew I couldn't get into the big, big ones, but the, the small little nonprofit theaters. And I uh, would send them my press kit and make the follow-up calls and, you know, I'm you know, sometimes they bite. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I started get uh, you know, over the next few years, um, got booked my, I would went back to Chicago, performed there, you know, at, a, at a, the Victory Gardens Theater. I sold out on a rainy Thursday in Santa Cruz, uh, Boulder, Colorado, you know, LA, well, that was kind of a fiasco, but, uh, but, oh, and then San Francisco became almost a second home for me because I, I began performing at a fascinating, fascinating uh, place called Valencia Rose, which is a is a bit legendary now, 
in retrospect. And there was this gay um, kind of art center cabaret in the mission and all sorts of interesting people were starting out there at the exact same time, Leah Delaria and Marga Gomez and this this young woman who was calling herself Whoopi Goldberg. She was doing her <laughs> there and we all thought, oh, she's just going places. She's, and it was a really interesting time. It was probably 1981, I think. And Harvey Milk had just been assassinated maybe the year before or something like that. And while I was there, I met um, just all the people in Harvey Milk's circle and it was sort of fascinating. Um, in this theater there, what, what pieces were you doing? Did you, Was there one particular, you said you toured a little bit, Santa Cruz and these other areas. Was there one piece that was becoming the more po- the most popular piece that you wrote or you were doing various pieces? Uh, various. We, I, would, I developed a, a circuit of places where I'd go each year. And um, and so I would bring a new show each, each, each year and, and d- different pieces. Yeah, and they kept getting more, you know, kind of elaborate and, and challenging and pushing myself and lear- learning, just kept learning. I think that really was the thing that I kept me going I, I, because it was very difficult. I still could not earn a living and I would I was developing a, a real following in these different cities, you know, and I and as I said, I could sell out on a rainy Tuesday night. But then after the four week run was over, I'd come back to New York and, and have to be an office temp or, um, you know, receptionist in a zipper factory or all the different crazy jobs that I that I had to do. And, and so you just get very it's, it's hard, you know, when you're sort of a success on Sunday night and then Monday you're, you're back, you know, uh, cleaning an apartment. So what year when you're at the Valencia Rose is that? 81. They really embraced me in San Francisco. I really was had a feeling of success there at Valencia Rose. And, you know, I would play for uh, runs, you know, and I was there, you know, I'd be doing you know, five shows a week, something like that. I was there for 81, 82, 83, something like that. And during these performances, are you also, you're writing for yourself, but do you begin writing for other people? Does anyone come towards you and, and solicit you to possibly write for them? Does that no. ever come about? Eventually it does, does it not? No. <laughs> never? Okay. <laughs> no, 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 never, never, nobody ever was interested in anything. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, then I, I got a very prestigious gig. My most prestigious gig was the Indiana Repertory Theater in Indianapolis. Uh, although I was not on their main stage, I was always in the alternative theater space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, small, the smaller uh, local community room or yeah, what they the, call it. Yeah. The theater that had 70 seats, they put me in the smaller space at 30 seats yeah yeah i was always in the alternative theater space which was a challenge yeah no i started doing that then my big break came you just never know it you just never know where when fortune is going to knock on your door because i and i i, I see one of the problems i think was that i i just never um i never had the big dream I, you know i maybe i'd be more successful if i did i i, I never um was thinking in terms of oh i'm gonna get a sitcom i am gonna star in a sitcom i'm gonna win an oscar i never thought that way i was always somehow gotta get to boulder colorado <laughs> do my act and and then i you know i would get that and then i somehow got to get to san francisco do my act so i never had the bigger the big dream um but then in 1984 you know things just really weren't progressing and i was kind of things were a little depressing a lot of these venues i was playing at shutting down or didn't want to pay me or you know stuff like that and it just happened that um 
this very exotic friend of mine, a performance artist named Bina Sharif, invited me to see her do her, her performance piece way in the scary part of New York at that time of, in the East Village area called Alphabet City that was very undeveloped and well, kind of burnt out buildings. And um, But it was just starting to become this kind of edgy place with da dance clubs and art galleries. And so I, I went to see her perform at this place called the Limbo Lounge. And I was just enraptured with her and the whole kind of the sort of gay, straight, goth, punk atmosphere. And it's, it was this tiny storefront, narrow storefront. And I, um, I, I thought I just have to do a show here. And I said to my roommate, um, Ken, who was a director and had been directing my act, I said, we got to do a show. And I found the young owner, Michael Limbo, who was a very hip young guy. And you know, I said, I would just love to perform here. And it was so loose. He just looked on the calendar and said, I can give you uh, two weekends, you know, two uh, Friday and Saturday, um, a month from now. I said, I'll take it. And I, and I said, thought, well, I don't want to do my act, you know, my monologues, you know, dressed austerely in, in black. I want to be outrageous and decadent in a place like this. So I thought, I'll do drag again. And I hadn't done that since uh, I was in Chicago with my ill-fated group. And uh, so uh, I, I guess I should let it go, shouldn't I? Anyway, so yeah. And, and um, so I thought I'll write, write a little play and be, you know, play the female lead. And, and uh, so I, I was working as a receptionist and between phone calls, I just typed out this 45 minutes. At that point, I think it was only about 35 minutes, maybe. This sketch about these two vampire actresses who are feuding over the course of a millennium. And um, I needed a title for it. I asked a friend of mine who was clever, my friend Ed, actually. And he said, well, why don't you call it Vampire Lesbians of Sodom? I thought, okay, that'll do. It doesn't matter. Just, just, <laughs> so so is that, that's where that infamous title comes from, from Ed? Is that yeah, what? <laughs> Ed, 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 advertising. Is that what it's, it's like, like like a lurid 50s pulp novel title. I was like, okay. It didn't really matter. I said, I, we have to call it something. Just help me come up with something because, you know, I'm just doing it for for two nights. Little did I know. Yeah. And so we, you know, and I, the group cast was, you know, I told who the hell would, you know, not too many people were going to, you know, want to do this, perform in this uh, art gallery after hours bar in a scary part of town for no money. You'd have to be very desperate. And well, creative people will. Well, <laughs> I, just, you know, I asked just people, my best friends and people who I'd gathered throughout my the last few years. Um, my friend Andy Halliday had gone to theater camp with me. We know, knew each other since we were 14. And this one girl, Teresa, who was, um, I'd met her at the Source Theater Company. And Arnie, we worked together at the New York Renaissance Fair. And um, so, I, you know, put together, we put, and Ken was in it and directing it, my roommate. And so, you know, we did it for these two nights and, oh, we just had a ball. We had so much fun. And the second weekend was available. So we did it again. And uh, I'm just, it's. And how long before, I mean, is there an audience right away or how long before does it really, start to travel i mean well, not physically but the word of mouth well the secret is is that if each person invites six people you're sold out <laughs> <laughs> why didn't i figure that out before so yeah so yeah we just and then um, oh, the lady who was playing the succubus opposite me she was older than we were and she had been in charles ludlam's company and she didn't want to continue with us because she she wanted a place of the bathroom why yeah <laughs> yeah uh 
so then I, I, I knew this girl, Julie Halston, who um, was kind of an aspiring performance artist, but really basically was working on Wall Street. But I hooked her into playing the succubus and she became my dear friend and muse to this very day. And yeah, and it just, it really took off. It was kind of actually amazing what how small a city New York is. Because we, again, we had no money. We literally spent $35 on the show. But we did fly, we hooked up with... A, a very talented young man, Brian Whitehill, who was a graphic artist who works still for, for um, Channel 13, he, uh, PBS. He created the logos for great performances and a lot of those shows. And it has an incredible eye and thinks out of the box. So he uh, designed our flyers and each flyer was so, and the pictures we took were so provocative and kind of sexy and dirty and uh, glamorous in a cheap kind of way. And, and so they became, the flyers were, we did a series of plays with these crazy titles, the Adora, she bitch of Byzantium. Is and that something coming from Ed or no? <laughs> that one I came up with. That one I came up with. And we, um, you know, and I think these flyers, people started collecting them, putting them on their refrigerators, and that helped. And then, um, oh, there was a, a very influential um, gay newspaper in those days called the New York Native, and uh, this one critic, they had a theater critic, and he, um, he, he would review each each of our shows that only ran you know handful of performances but he kind of was drum up the you know beating the drum for us and it was kind of amazing how fast word of mouth traveled and particularly we kept bringing back vampire lesbians for a couple more nights and i don't know how they knew really knew about it but it was word of mouth and and they um uh, you know we had no ads or anything but we started people started waiting like for an hour down the block to get in to see us and and we were wondering is it really worth it i mean <laughs> good but we you know we were having a ball and and, and as opposed to the the group in chicago who uh, resented me um this group of people we just loved each other we were, we were great friends and we we all i think weren't having enough fun in our lives and what year is it, what year is this at vampire 1984 and it was the height of the aids crisis too <laughs> and i think everybody you know we were also freaked out and scared and and our audience as well and I think that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to puff this up too much, but I, I, I do think there was an element of, of, of the gay, a lot of gay people in Manhattan who, who were rather traumatized, you know, and, and no longer could go to the baths or the bars, you know, that, that suddenly there were these, this wacky little troupe were putting on these crazy plays that are kind of sexy and kind of, kind of fun and dirty and, you know, and um, they all want to be a part of it. And so, yeah, just, it was really, really amazing. I wouldn't, I mean, it sounds like I'm making it up, but, but in this play, you know, vampire lesbians, how long does it go? How long does it, does it, it obviously it starts moving on to other theaters? Well, so we were, it was just, you know, a couple nights here, a couple nights mm -hmm. there. We did a whole season, we called it a season, it's very grand, but, <laughs> you know, we actually bought folding chairs. We did a season of three plays, and um, I kept turning out these plays, we kept doing them, and, and, um, and then there was one particular night when we were doing Vampire Lesbians that was so crowded in there, you know, and there were people sitting on the uh, top of the uh, ice machine, and it was, it was just nuts. And afterwards, we went to dinner, Ken and I, and we were had all the cash, and we were, you know, put in piles of a hundred. And uh, and Ken said, uh, "Oh my God, is it, is it possible that this this could be the break? <laughs> no, this might be it." Uh, and 
so Ken, it's really all Ken. I owe my my life to Ken Elliott. Um, thought, well, well, maybe we can get producers to come and who will want to produce us for a regular commercial off-Broadway run in a theater. And we got people down there, you know, and they didn't want to, it's cute, but, and then um, there was this one um, old, old-time producer, Arthur Cantor, who was a producer, but also among his various enterprises, he um, managed this small um, a rental theater, um, the Provincetown Playhouse in the village. Uh, that was kind of a, a jinxed house. Nothing ever ran more than a weekend there. He liked, wanted to fill it. So he did, wouldn't produce the show, but he said he'd book it at his theater. So, so then Ken thought, well, we'll just have to produce it ourselves. And Ken worked out this minuscule budget that would just get us through opening night. That was it. Uh, but it seemed like a lot of money. It was $55,000. seemed like a fortune uh we for the next you know it was all very fast really over the next five months maybe six months we somehow just got that money together and it's basically everybody's families everybody's you know grandmother and you know boss and you know people that work came through people who'd seen the show these four young guys who came every night they pooled their money together by a unit of the show it was very capra-esque and then what, where, where is this play staged in at this point where you raised the 55,000? Well, we were, you know, doing just, you know, still like we'd go back to Limbo Lounge two, two nights just so we could uh, producers see it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, we, um, in, when was it? Uh, June 85, we opened at the Provincetown Playhouse and uh, for an open-ended commercial run. You know, as I said, we only had enough money to get through opening night and we were very, it all depended on, on the New York Times Review. And it came out opening night, and it was just this extraordinary rave review—the rave of your of your fantasies. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just incredible, and everybody got mentioned, and every, you just couldn't believe it. You just couldn't, you know. We were all were sobbing and carrying on, and you know, it just was the most amazing, probably the greatest night of my life. Nothing can ever be better because I went from nowhere to someplace. And the show um, was a big hit. It ran five years. Our original cast stayed in it for about um, a year. No, well, no, more than that, almost two years. We replaced everybody in the show with new, new people to keep it running. And then we all moved to another theater a few doors down the street, another little theater called the Players Theater. And we uh, did another show, uh, Psycho Beach Party. And, and that ran about a year. And it was a very uh, wonderful period of time where, you know, we had two shows running on the same street and two small theaters. And, <laughs> and, our, and, and we were part of this little group of kindred spirits. And we all, in those days, we all uh, adored each other and we're having just so much fun and, and, and considered it a miracle. We just really, we, we had been part of a miracle that this thing had happened to us that we decided to put on a show for a weekend in this bar. And then here we are in a real theater with a bathroom and backstage. <laughs> Mirrors. Mirror. Not mirror, but a mirror. Yeah. And also it just was, and, and really just marvelous is that um, literally from the moment, from opening night of Vampire Lesbians from June, June 22nd, 1985, um, from that moment on, I could earn my living as an actor-writer. Never had to do anything else ever. And I could just be me. And, you know, I've had this very wonderful life. Never have to do anything other than what I want to do. Awesome. So eventually after, after that successful run there, uh, you know, after it opens there, eventually transition into, I mean, film roles or film writing eventually pops into this, doesn't it? Um, Well, quite, quite a bit later. Um, 
Well, you know, I, 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 suddenly there there was interest in me because I did this hit off Broadway show, and I got suddenly, you know, here I, I never could get an agent, and all of a sudden the next day after the play opens, ICM and William Morris agency was wooing me. It, it was kind of nuts, you know. I couldn't get a job as a, as a temp there the week before, <laughs> and suddenly they're wooing me, you know. And um, so you know, I signed with the William Morris agency because I was sort of any meeny miny mo basically, and and I think they signed me with the idea that I would be a TV writer because I wrote funny that I'd be sitcom writing and that was never what I wanted to do but I you know I played along and <laughs> and as you can see I um I I'm a good salesman so I was very good at pitching TV shows because I didn't really care that's the thing you know I wasn't sweating I didn't really so I I you know, I'm a performer so I put on a big show and get them, you know, a tear in their eye, and, you know, and and I leave with the with a deal. It's kind of amazing, and um, but my pitch was always better than what I delivered, and now oh. I, I had this amazing track record of selling TV pilots, but not one pilot was ever filmed. I've never had the experience of, of even even a pilot, yeah, because I I don't think it really was for me. I don't think that um, gifts as a comic writer really suited the the sitcom format, or certainly not in those days. Things are looser today, but the strict, you know, form that the recipe, the recipe. I, yeah. I, yeah, there's a reason why nothing sold. I, you know, I, I used to blame it on other things, and I realized that just was delivering wasn't as good as what I was selling. But so I did do some stuff like that, and you know, and I did. I got some writing jobs. I was asked to uh, adapt, do rewrites of old flop musicals. Or being revived and stayed flop musicals, even after we write. But mainly, mainly in those years, I was I had my company, and we did a series of plays through the early '90s. You know, and I just kept doing that, and 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 then I guess well, really, it was not until the until gosh, until '99. So you know, I'd already had a 15-year commercial career um, that um, Psycho Beach Party uh, became a movie. I I didn't really see it I, I i didn't think it was suitable for a movie i thought it was such a, a theater piece but i had a mar marvelous marvelous manager who just adored me jeff melnick who who just passed away unfortunately about a year and a half ago and i um miss him so much and he really is responsible for so much that happened to me good you know he believed it's just very rare for people in showbiz, you know, to um, to have management, a manager who thinks more of you than you do. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the best. That's the best kind, right? I mean, it's the best. I, yeah. I, oh, I mean, because I, I still did not really want to pursue an acting career, you know, beyond my own work. But he wanted that. He wanted me to say, oh, he he contacted the. Royal Shakespeare Company in in London to uh, have them have me play Juliet. <laughs> he never told me what their response was. I don't think it was. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, oh, at one point I I did do some acting work, but it was, you know when I've gotten jo acting jobs, it's strictly because they um somebody got an idea, wrote me in. Like um mm -hmm. I, I was regular on that HBO series Oz for two years. I was I didn't audition. That was strictly that. It, well, actually, yeah. It, what, what, really, what happened was, was, was that I had been telling Jeff, my manager, on the phone that I was a fan of the show. I, you know, wasn't, I, and I, I wasn't serious. I, I said, oh, it would just, I'm just kind of daydreaming aloud. Oh boy, it would be kind of cool to be on a show like that. And then after we got off the phone, he he called up the casting director. He said, oh, that's a wonderful idea. And 
and then and they shot it in New York. And Tom Fontana, the creator producer of, of the show, uh, called me in and we met. And he said, well, "We'd love to have you on the show. And what kind of character would you like to play?" So I, I described the character, and I, I thought oh, he's not going to really do it. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, you know, months or so later, they called up one of my availability for these dates, and I was on that. You saw, you sold it again. See, you sold it again. <laughs> one time, you know, I I did nine episodes of of One Life to Live, soap opera, because um, one, uh, Jeff Melnick, he called up and said, you won't believe this, but this producer from One Life to Live wants you to be on their show playing a female character. Uh, so you call him back and find out uh, at what point they pull my wig off and, and so, oh, discover she's a man, you know. <laughs> no, no, it's not me. This guy is a fan of yours and just wants you to play this lady who runs a modeling agency. Oh, wow. So, so I did, you know, nine episodes. It's pegged bar, though. <laughs> that, that's, that's kind of and, yeah, and they film in New York or did you fly yeah. to LA? They film in New York. Yeah, but, I, but that was about it, really. Oh, and I had a little couple. Oh, did I? I guess I, well, oh, I had a, I had sort of a nice part in a marvelous movie, Adam's Family Values, the remake. But that was because my friend Paul Rudnick wrote it and he wrote me in. But then they cut me out of the whole movie. I have one line left. And there's another big movie called uh, It Could Happen to You. It Could Happen to You and It Should Happen to You. I think this is one of them with Bridget Fonda and, and Nicolas Cage. And I had, a, I had kind of a nice little part in that. But but I didn't really pursue it. However, um, Jeff did pursue the idea of Psycho Beach Party being a, a movie. And it took him about eight years. And then it all the pieces all worked together that he was representing um, a young filmmaker. And when, when, when did it come to fruition then, the the, the project, Psycho Beach Party? I think, I think it was uh, 99, I think, I believe. And I'm not so great with dates. So Psycho Beach Party, then uh, you have some great success of that. And I know somewhat familiar with Die, Mommy, Die. So what, when did that, uh, did that lead to Die, Mommy, Die? Or how did that? So it came together because Jeff uh, began representing this young director, Bob King. And Bob had a deal with Strand Distribution. He wanted to produce a feature for him, and so it all it all joined forces and it became Psycho Beach Party. And had you know a wonderful cast of people who all became well known afterwards. Um, Amy Adams and um, Lauren Ambrose and oh, Thomas Gibson and all these people. And the success of that film uh, does that lead to other projects then? Not necessarily. Other film projects. Well, but well, I, I actually it's it's there's more the fact that um, wh while I was in L.A. filming the, the movie, uh, before I got there, um, Ken Elliott, you know, my my director producer in New York at theater, had had moved to L.A. to get into uh, trying to get into TV directing. So when he knew that I was going to be out in L.A. making this movie, came with this crazy notion that I embraced that. Well, why don't you do? Why don't we do a play at the same time? You know, because uh, it would give him some, you know, um, visibility. So I, my part in the movie of Psycho Beach Party was a supporting role. I, we decided that we it was mutually agreed that we didn't want the movie to be so stylized that you know that we'd have a 45 year old man playing the young, you know, the young girl. So Lauren Ambrose played that part, 
but they wanted me in the movie, so I wrote a new part for myself, supporting role as this um, glamorous police detective. While I, while I was there, we did this play, Die, Mommy, Die, at the Coast Playhouse, and um, it all just kind of, again, fell together that um, this producer, these two producers, one was the actor Anthony Edwards from ER, and uh, his producing partner at the time, Dante DeLoretto, had an idea for a, a book they'd optioned that they thought maybe I could adapt his screenplay and it didn't really ultimately it wasn't gonna didn't seem right but they came to see just as being polite they saw me in die mommy die and then we all thought oh let's make a movie of this and dante's part lover uh, was a, a theater director mark rucker and mark had gone to film school i guess he'd seen a screening of betty davis and now voyager and said to dante someday i want to i want to direct a an old-fashioned women's picture starring charles bush they, they didn't know me at that point. All these pieces came together, and and um, so I wrote quickly wrote a screen adaptation of Die, Mommy, Die, and and Mark was going to direct it, and and it was it happened, it came together amazingly quickly because most even even low budget indie films can take years before they happen, but this was really a question of within a year, and that was so much fun, and I just loved every every second of it starring <laughs> that movie and. I loved working with Mark Rucker and just so in sync with the way we saw things. And, you know, I'd never starred in a movie. You know, my experiences on film as an actor had been, and even on Oz, was so fleeting. You know, it was a question of just, you know, hitting my marks and trying not to screw up and waste people's time. But to star in a movie and play all these scenes, love scenes with Jason Priestley and fight scenes with uh, Francis Conroy and musical numbers. And, oh, my God, it was just, you know... I, I I just couldn't believe every second, really, just every second I was in a state of rapture. I just couldn't believe my my good fortune that this wonderful thing had happened to me. And it's a movie I'm very proud of. And did you find yourself always, uh, life always be centered around New York? Did you ever live in Los Angeles, the West Coast, or is it, did you always return to New York? Yeah, my home was always New York because ultimately I was, you know, of the theater. And so it was New York. Over the years, now I, I would I do, we did, I did several plays. We did Vampire Lesbians at the, at the Coronet Theater, you know, for a few months. And you know, I've I've spent months at a time, you know, making a movie or Die Mommy Die. We, we played quite a while. Yeah, I, I love L.A. I I'm not an L.A. basher at all. I, I but I've see I've been so fortunate that I've always I've always come to L.A. to do something exciting, you know, a play or a movie. I've never been out of work in L.A. and and sitting by the pool just. Hoping that the phone rings. Because I would see them. We stayed at first, one of the first times I was there, we, I stayed at the Highland Gardens and you know, I'd be off to uh, you know some sort of appointment and we'd see all the people sitting by the pool and I'd come back, they're st still sitting there. <laughs> I thought, oh God, that's not for me. I, I, it's such an industry town. If you're not working, it must be just gruesome. Pre uh, pandemic, were you working at all? Uh, what were you doing pre-pandemic? Anything was, on the stage in New York? I was in a play called The Confession of Louis Dare. And we, uh, it was you know, a wonderful experience. We got you know, great reviews and sold out. And we uh, finished the, it was a limited nonprofit run. Um, and we, we closed on March 5th, which is perfect timing. And, you know, um, one, one week later, we would have had to be 
forced to, to shut down. So yeah, so, so so I ended, I began the pandemic on on a high, and then um, I, I have to be careful because I don't want to come off obnoxious, but I, I I actually had a marvelous time during the past six months. I we uh, made another movie. Uh, I've been working very closely for the past twenty five years with a very talented um, director, Carl Andrus, who's really my my closest friend and, and I, I wanted desperately to make another movie the last film i had made was a, a movie that i had directed acted in and co-wrote with carl called a very serious person that you know just um, you know kind of came and went and went straight to, to video and that was 12 years ago and i i just was so oh i wanted to desperately make another film but where my other movies just kind of came about happened you know uh it wasn't happening and so i was really i I had been trying to um, to pitch a, a, an adaptation of another of a play of mine that was quite successful a few years ago called The Divine Sister, and I just couldn't sell it, you know. And and I was being unrealistic. I I was telling people, oh, it could be made, you know, very cheaply, and, and it really couldn't, you know. It was period and musical numbers, and it, you know, I was just deluded. And I got an opportunity to we got financing immediately uh, from a a private investor to do this new movie and you've been shooting this during the pandemic yeah we shot wow. the whole I, we recalled i wrote it you know all within a year i mean it didn't, a year ago i don't think it existed at all except not even our imaginations but we wrote it and co-wrote it and then we uh co-directed it shot it yeah we shot it here with very very strict covid protocols uh mostly in a studio we we had Carl and I had written the play, the movie, to be shot on a very low budget. We we thought it would be shot all in just people's apartments because it takes place in my neighborhood in the West Village. But with the pandemic, it was um, safer and more realistic to shoot the whole thing in a, at a, a soundstage. And so so we just did. It, we shot the whole thing in 15 days. It was just insane, really. And um, we um, did 10 days in the studio and five days in Manhattan. And, and what is that? Can you tell me a little bit about what the storyline is is it charles charles bush style that we won't understand it until we've seen it a few times or <laughs> a madcap zany caper comedy uh set today among in the milieu of, of classic film collectors and dealers and i i play a male character i play jimmy who's a rather disreputable uh film dealer and collector and the terrible reputation for cheating people and there's the long version the short version i really should get this down to uh so is there is there any uh, I, I i anyway what happens is um uh, i i find um I, t I take care i'm like a caregiver to this this old man and who dies before the, just as the movie starts and and he ha i discover oh, oh, and so his, the executor of his estate is this uh, w um, uh widow from boca played by my old buddy julie halston and she comes to new york to to uh settle his affairs and we discover that this old man had stuck in a, in a mini fridge in his closet one real of this incredibly rare lost silent film that everybody's dying to, to get a hold of. And the question is, you know, do we, are we, do we do the right thing and give it to the Museum of Modern Art or TCM, or do we sell it to a private collector for you know, a million dollars? <laughs> so, so then it becomes this wild thing where see, the movie gets stolen from us and we have to steal it back and we get into zany disguises and there were lots of running around the streets and so oh. there is a there are some female roles in there for you then yes i get into two disguises <laughs> twice uh, i at one point i i pose as um the head of the new head of acquisitions of 
Museum of Modern Art, Tatiana Rosevich. And then I later have to pretend to be the uh, a very um, wealthy um, uh, widow from Colorado who uh, sneaks into uh, a big board meeting. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's real wacky. It's got a little bit of the quality of, um, of those uh, British uh, Ealing comedies of the early 60s. Group of misfits uh, somehow get a, a scheme and try to pull a fast one. But I, I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I can't wait. We're in post-production awesome. now. We're right in the middle of music scoring and sound editing and color correction and Awesome. That. Very excited. I know you've been in my neck of the woods in Palm Springs. So when you when you do the shows, you know, when you travel now, uh, you know, not now, but you know, pre pandemic, are you doing excerpts from your plays? Or there's a one? Can you tell us a little bit about your one man show that you do when pre pre pandemic? What, what, well, what can we eight or nine years ago, I uh, decided to delve, uh, dip my feet into the world of cabaret, you know, because before I had I, over the years, several times I had, I had stepped into cabaret originally, you know, as I said, just to do these monologues, which weren't terribly suited for uh, people drinking. And then in the early 90s, did a version of a cabaret act in, in, in drag where I'd sing songs and do sort of special material. Nine years ago, I, I hooked up with um, an old friend of mine, Tom Judson, who's a wonderful musical director and arranger and performer. And so we, we it, it really was just because um, out of the blue, I'd gotten an offer to um, to perform on RSVP Gay Cruise. And they wanted me to do a whole act, you know, and be in, in drag. And I, I hadn't done anything like that since the early 90s. But it was, it was you know, good money. And I thought, you know, I'd never been on a cruise. So why, why not try it? So I got in touch with Tom, who I'd known for years, and we uh, threw together this 45-minute act on the boat. It was kind of a hokey act, but anyway, we enjoyed working together, and then we just started getting other gigs, and um, and so we really, really pursued it for the past uh, um, nine years, and we've been in, uh, you know, about, um, I don't know, at least 30 cities in four different countries. I mean, it's really been quite a career in itself uh, between doing plays and other other things and I really enjoyed it and I I just well, I love Tom so much and we have just so much fun touring around and you know we for a number of years number of years there we had a real kind of west coast circuit we do a crazy tour of you know two nights in LA two nights in San Francisco two nights in Palm Springs uh, San Diego and we just weave around over the course of a week and a half and, and do that yeah we played London and Sitges Spain and uh, Paris and we, 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 we but we, we were about to make our our long-awaited Columbus, Ohio debut if we hadn't been made by a, a worldwide <laughs> pandemic. Like, oh, you, haven't, you haven't played unless you've played uh, <laughs> Listening to your stories, very, very inspiring, just 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 as a human to human. It's a very inspiring story. And would you... Uh, would you I didn't not really look answer to... the question, though. The, question, the, the, the simple question is, is the act that I do at this point is um, has evolved you know, it used to be I, I was in drag, although I didn't really quite understand why I was in drag since I was in Charles Bush and then sang songs by Henry Mancini and Burt Bacharach and told stories about my life. But it just seemed that, you know, that's what, what I'm known for. But gradually, I, about four years ago, I, I decided to not do it in drag anymore. And, and people seem to like it just as much. And, and, I, and I've just learned so much about music. Tom has, has pushed me and uh, challenged me. So and the music, the range, arrangements get tougher and more elaborate. And, you know, and then I just tell stories like I'm talking to you right now. 
And so that's that's been, been the, the act. I don't know how much I'm going to pursue it again once uh, live performance comes back. I, I might be a little too old to be doing all that traveling about, but. Well, your story itself, just to, just what we spoke about tonight, is very uh, you know inspiring. I'm sure to many people. I uh, I know it is for for me just a, just as a human being, not not that I want to pursue acting, but it's just very inspiring that you just continue to go, you know, continue to sail even in with so much uh, failure, if you will. You still continue to keep going until something happens, and that's inspiring to to for a lot of people. When you look back and when you you're the first person I've spoken to that's really an actor first and then played female role. So is there anyone that you see today, uh, you know, if you will, you know, a performer or actor that does female roles that that kind of you take a second glance at and say, wow, that person's talented, or that person's going somewhere? Necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of people I think are really talented, you know, and and, um, when it comes to playing female roles, men playing female roles, I don't really know if he's really exactly doing doing that today. But I, but you know, I the guy, you know, the performers that I drag performers that I I um I really you know um, think are great. You know, I think Jinx Monsoon is is sort of from in my line, and and, and you know Miss Coco Peru is is a, a real friend of mine, and yes, I think she's considers me her, her drag mother or something and you know and um it's, 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 I, some of these people that i love they aren't i guess they've been around for 30 years now i think of them as so young because they're they're younger than me you know varla jean merman's hardly a beginner but anyway yeah and lipsinka is my dear friend um, and you know i watch i you know i watch drag race which i really enjoy and i a lot of those people are just are, people are, are great but i don't know if they're necessarily doing doing plays they're they really are you know their own creative entity you know ben de la cram and there's talent talented people i mean it is and i mean this is the range and the range of style and um of all, all these different performers is, is fantastic yeah and I'm, I'm i'm not one of those people who's going to be some old fogey saying oh you know back in my day <laughs> i dragged <laughs> well everyone everyone one of the reasons why i started the podcast was everyone has a story and everyone's story has always inspired or or sets a fire within to follow their own dreams and and listen to yours i'm sure will do that for many people or has done that for many people what is so. amusing though is mm-hmm. is evidently i didn't realize but uh, a lot of the young drag performers one of the first things they ever did was one of my plays you know in, in their hometown i think bianca del rio uh was in a production, you know, wherever she grew up, of Psycho Beach Party, and she got her first drag name from one of the characters in that play. And uh, yeah, I think they're. And then, oh, he's well, he's not a drag performer, but um, very moved when um, Jim Parsons done all sorts of interviews and says that the big turning point in his belief in himself was when he uh, was in a community like community theater production of a couple of my plays and made him see that that you know he could have a career uh as a as a out gay performer and i was really um quite rolled over what from the things no, I, everybody everybody touches somebody in this in this yeah. worldly those plant planet and creative planet we live in and uh you know that's one of the reasons why the why i do the podcast listening to amazing stories like yourself i really really appreciate it charles i mean it's really been very enlightening and very inspiring your story tonight so oh, it's been delightful I, um, chatting you. with you thank you for I, having me I have to I have to tell you a little insight. I don't think you, uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but I urge you to listen to Sherry Vine's interview with oh. me because it's just so funny because, you know, she, she desperately wanted to be an actor, a male actor, you know, and they, her family sent her, she was an undergrad at USC and um, she has this moment, uh, 
it's kind of the opposite of yours because you wanted to play females. You know, she never thought of herself of ever playing female roles. And it was, and and uh, a professor pulled her aside and told her, you might want to look at playing female roles. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's it's a great story how she tells her story about how the drag act came about because she always wanted to be a male lead. Right, she ne- right. She never yeah. thought of herself of ever being a female lead. So, And then uh, there was a period where where she started a little company, Theater Couture, here in, in, in I think, in New York, um, with Jackie Beat, and um, and they did they did plays. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's kind of in my line. And then I'm I'm a huge fan of of her her close buddy Raven O. Yeah. I think was brilliant singer. And I'm also very fond of um, Joey Arias, her big, um, very very talented circle. You guys all are very part smart. of. Yeah, yeah I, I really think yeah. they're. They're great. Such 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 st- great style. Well, sir, I appreciate your time. It's been very very enlightening, and uh, I thank you so much for your time okay. tonight. Okay. And Charles, hopefully one day when you get to Palm Springs, I'll be happy to host you here at, at Oscars, and uh, I, I get to it. meet you in person. So. Okay, Dan. All right. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you for listening to Icon's Incredible Creation on Stage podcast, hosted by Dan Gore. If you would like to know more about our wonderful host, follow Dan Gore at facebook.com slash lookalikes and at Oscars Downtown Palm Springs. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit subscribe and leave us a review. A new podcast every other week. Until then, have an iconic day.